Art on your sleeve. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Art on Your Sleeve, a podcast about art, design and the music industry. This particular episode is a supplement to issue 32 of Classic Pop magazine. In that issue, I interviewed and put together a pop art feature about the work of Rob O'Connor and his design studio, Stylo Rouge. Rob O'Connor's been active in the music and design industry since the late 1970s and I was lucky to spend a few hours with him out at his studio in Kent where we talked about everything from the very start of his career right up to present day. The portfolio of Styler Rouge is gigantic and that's one of the reasons why I'd actually delayed it until issue 32. It's actually my 20th article for the magazine because I didn't know where to start. It's tricky when you're putting together an article about a specific graphic designer because they generally have a lot of clients, but none more so than Rob and Stylo Rouge. His list is literally in the hundreds, and it's frustrating when you're putting together an article knowing that from the outset you're going to have to leave a lot of information out because you really want to cover as much as you possibly can. But there's always uh, a limit on word count, and you generally will have to be very, very focused on what you cover. Thankfully, Styler Rouge had a book published a couple of years ago called Delicious, The Design and Art Direction of Styler Rouge. And I urge anyone who's interested in Rob's work or in the design for the music industry in general to try and get hold of a copy because it's a beautiful padded book. And I'd like to thank Rob for giving me a copy of it um, that spans sort of 20 years of the work of his studio. And it really is uh, a beautiful thing. Just reading from the back of it, it says, Since 1981, Styler Rouge have found an enthusiastic following among design and music fans, observers within the media and students of art, by producing memorable, successful and often groundbreaking visual campaigns for hundreds of musical artists. They've also made their mark in video direction and advertising, website, exhibition and movie poster design. And this book is a full colour visual celebration of all of that work. So in this episode, I've tried to cover as much as we possibly can, but I probably would have needed to have stayed with him for a week to do all of that. So I hope I haven't left out too much of, inf- of the information about your favourite artists. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. I started off at the very beginning asking Rob about his entry into the music industry in the late 1970s. So I, I started work as soon as I left college in a little agency in Brighton, which was just where I, met, where I had intended to make my home for the rest of my life. And what year and, was um, that? Oh, 78, okay. um, so just be, before that. I was 77, maybe. Anyway, and whatever it was, not very good on you. <laughs> um, and it was a great little company, and we did lots of things, and, and most of what I did was incredibly unglamorous, like company... Uh, magazines, you know, in-house magazines, um, and um, sales sales briefs for things like uh, industrial pumps. It sounds terribly boring, and it really is. But it gives you a you had to do a bit of technical drawing, a bit of layout, a bit of using the PMT machine, the whole you know. So it was good. But then I'd already been to the record companies, a couple of the record companies I went to while I was at college to see if I would like to work there and. Polydor, I really would have liked to work there because they were signing some good bands and whatnot. And sure enough, after I'd been at this other job for about four or five months, they called me up and said there was a vacancy. And it was actually Jill Mumford, who's 
who had been working with Susie and the Banshees, and I checked her out, and I thought, blimey, she's doing some great work. And uh, so I went and got that. I went to an interview, and fortunately got offered that job. So I had to commute up to London for a few months. And so was that straight out of university, pretty much? Pretty much. I did that six months in the little uh, place in, um, in Brighton. And where did you go to university? Was that in Brighton? I was in Brighton, but I had a year. I'd had a year in Coventry as well. I wasn't accepted when I left foundation year at Brighton, um, which I took very badly, actually. I don't know why I just did. I, I didn't want to be defeated, so as soon as I got to Coventry, which was my second choice, I started applying to leave, which they didn't take very well either. That's a, that's a long story. So you, the Banshee stuff was a year later, but so in, in that very first year in '79, you'd done the John, John Otway album, and then uh, since you've been gone for Rainbow as well, is that right? There lots of things. I mean, the thing is, when you're in an art department in a record company, you get to do a lot of lots of things across the board. So you bite your lip, and you know, doing advertising for James Last, uh, bits and pieces of Sham '69. You really look forward to getting those little jobs, and when I've been there three years, and John Otway, funnily enough, I am still, I still will go and see Otway play live uh, <laughs> if I'm feeling weak, uh, because he's quite a character. Does he still do really free? He does really free. He wouldn't, he wouldn't leave the stage without doing it. Um, <laughs> so in 1980, you, do, you were doing lots of Banshee stuff. Cause that was when they'd sort of broken through, hadn't they? In 1980, yeah, kind of gone mainstream. Yes. Um, so was this all specifically because you were working for Polydor, so you were working just on Polydor artists, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't in a position to do any freelance work, because right. we were, uh, mainly because I was working so hard at, po at Polydor, you know, sort of 12 hours a day and uh, struggling a bit with it, because the, the work just kept coming, which I was really up for, but I just after a while thought it's just, it's mm. just too stressful and, and they don't pay you enough money. And how many were in the team? There were three designers. So in 1981, this is a bit like this is your life, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the passion stuff's there, and then uh, more Banshee stuff. And yeah. Ronnie, this, yeah. this links in with, I suppose, with what I was saying about Visage, doesn't it? Because, you know, she, yeah, she yeah. was like a kind of androgynous, wasn't she? She was lovely, and I, I really enjoyed that era. She was, um, she was championed by Rusty Egan, and uh, Rusty and I were quite buddy for a few months while we were going through that project. He really liked what we were doing. He got us to redesign the, um, the identity for Camden Palace. He basically took over the, um, the bookings at Camden Palace, and it was mainly trying to make the Camden Palace, trying to give it the credibility that Blitz yes. had, had had, but it's a much bigger club, obviously. And uh, yeah, and that was at the time at which I thought, now, now's the time to leave. Polydor really and I was on my own for about three months and again struggling to get the work done um, and I, I got a knock I was in a tiny little room above um, one of our artwork supply companies that we used at Polydor they were very kind and said look 
we've got a room you can have it um, and I've got and they had another guy who wanted to share half of it so we just redecorated it between <laughs> us put a little wall down the middle so that we had our two separate companies um, <laughs> and within I don't know six months the room that was supposed to be just for me there were three people in always and sometimes four it was getting a bit um, strange and we used to have to have our meetings in there so we were working for the creatures or the passions, the passions was worse because there were four of them, they'd all turn up and we'd, I'm so sorry, this is where the meeting room is, or we'd go to the pub, which is not very conducive to. So at which point did you go from being Rob O'Connor to Stylo Rouge? Was that, was that here or was that in No, straight, straight away. Yeah, when I left Polydor, um, I'd already set the company name up. It wasn't a limited company, but I knew I wanted to call it Stylo Rouge and it was it was because I wanted to go freelance, but at the same time, I didn't want to be... You know, Peter was Peter Savile Associates or something. I can't remember what he called himself. Um, Bill Smith, Bill Smith Studio. Um, and, and I just really didn't want that. Mm. I mean, I wanted what Malcolm had, which was assorted images, mm. that kind of umbrella thing, because I felt that one day I would want to hide within it a little bit, and I knew that well, there were a lot of talented people out there you see them when, you, when you're commissioning artwork as an art director in a record company, you see these amazingly talented people coming through. And I was actually thinking, I want these people working for me one day, and I, they're not going to work for Rob O'Connor Limited. Mm. So um, I never was interested in the name side of it, really. And where did the name come from? It was a, a, my girlfriend uh, sort, sort of came up with it. I like the idea because of the new romantic thing of it being French. And there was a there was um, a writer um, for NME called Savage Pencil. He might have been a, a cartoonist actually. Right. He called himself Savage Pencil. <laughs> and the, the the art director there was called Caramel Crunch. I just like the fact that all these people had picked up the <laughs> punk yes. idea of like not not actually recognising yourself. And and I wanted something that meant something. Savage Pencil was the one that stuck in my brain. Um, and I just thought it'd be nice if it was vaguely political, and I'm, you know, I'm very comfortably left of centre. So something red, maybe something to do with a pen, and yeah, red pen. And we discovered it was Stylo Rouge, and so she said that's Stylo Rouge, and I just thought, yeah, okay, it works. Yeah, Ronnie didn't come up with it for you though. <laughs> I, I, I did. I was in a photo shoot with Ronnie, and I was really tempted because I knew I was leaving. I was really tempted to ask her if she would do the put the telephone um, answer machine. So in 1984, um, you began working with Alison Moyet. Uh, pretty much from the from the start of her solo career, wasn't it? It was. It was the first album and single. Yeah, the yeah. Well, we picked it up after one single had been done, and it was done by Rockin' Russian, actually. But oh she yeah, the Love Resurrection. Yes. Yeah, she didn't like it very much, and the art, the, the marketing guy there, got me in and said, "Look, there's nothing wrong with it. We liked it. We were happy to get Rockin' Russian to do it, but Alison didn't like it. Thought it was a bit too." clever or up itself or something and uh, can you do something really straight down the line she just wants to look as good as possible and I um, obviously knew what she looked like from your zoo mm. and then yeah we just did a kind of looser hand drawn logo which had a little bit more 
it was less sophisticated really and it was and then we did a, a, a shoot with Simon Fowler um, which was the I mean I, I'd already known Simon for years so it was a case of you know perpetuating that relationship we yeah. did loads together during the 80s and 90s. And how involved was she, was Alison with, with the creative side of it then or were you just left together on with that, it really? On that one not very because she just we we told the record company that this was the shoot day and this is what we were going to do. We tried to create something that looked in his studio that looked like the inside of a, um, an old barn or something. Tiny little, you wouldn't know it from the tiny little bit. We just got a couple of these film props of like beams, got some smoke in the atmosphere, a bit of blue light and uh, and she didn't know what was going on but we did four or five setups and it, it gave us what we needed for the old devil called that old devil called love and the re all cried out as all well cried yeah that was the big one yeah yeah, um, yeah i loved working with alice and i was watching her on graham norton at the weekend thinking such a bloody shame we don't work for her she's so lovely to deal with and tough but you mm. know, plain talking and um she really we did an album for her called uh Rain dancing. Rain dancing. Thank you. Which she wanted to call water sports. And the record <laughs> company said there's absolutely no bloody way you're going to be able to. So at this time in your career, she's always been subversive, um, and even at the point where you know she she committed herself to a, a, a deal with um, Sony and or CBS, and then went immediately got pregnant and wasn't available for any promo and all the rest of it. And she just thought, hang on, it's my body, it's my life, I'll do it, do it my way. But she, she, yeah, when it was water sports, and we said, come up with another name, you want water in there, put rain in there or something. And she insisted on doing this shoot uh, in a, underwater. And sure enough, we booked the sanctuary swimming, sort of the pool at the sanctuary in Covent Garden, which was a ladies only spa. And um, we went there at about midnight and photographer Richard Horton set all his lights up and I went around double strapping them all with ropes and God knows what because I was shitting bricks that there was going to be an insurance <laughs> issue. And uh, yeah, I was in there as the underwater assistant for Richard wow. Horton. It was a, a really weird... A really weird shoot. Not much came out of it that was used, <coughs> usable. Because the cover image was just a, a close-up, almost behind condensation or something, yeah. Well, Richard did a two-day shoot. We did this swimming pool thing, and then we went uh, into his studio and did some some more sedate things that could be used for press. I've probably still got pictures of Alison underwater. She'd probably kill me if I <laughs> went out. Um, yeah. Just going back to the, to that first album, to um, Alf, when I was trying to look at... Because um, I think the thing that's good about your work is that there isn't a very distinct style with it. It's quite diverse, <coughs> the range. Yeah. But the one thing that does link it is this sort of calligraphy, this hand-rendered... This, this, oh, yeah, that yeah. seemed to be the one strand that I could see that ran through a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and what, where did that come from? Did you do calligraphy at the I've university? Uh, or? Not, not particularly. I've always enjoyed it, and I still will do it now, um, if given the chance. And... Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I do still do that. and It's not always the same style, but yeah, we're, the, we were on a roll one year, I think. Um, uh, this thing we did for Alison, Alison was managed by Jed Doherty, but during the time, he also managed Paul Young. So he said, why don't you do 
a nice logo for Paul Young, it was, you know, and then Howard Jones, we were working yes. with Howard Jones, so it was the same kind of thing. It's like, oh, Howard wants something with a bit of personality. Okay, well, I'll have a bash it. So, so yeah, I did get into that um, hand-drawn logo thing. And what were you using to do that stuff? Was that just kind of rotaring pens or brushes or...? Anything, yeah, really anything. Um, I still do a bit now, Just I was just looking... Um, I was tidying up actually, just to make it look a bit tidier when you came in. I didn't really think we'd work in the So, um, yeah, and just realised how much hand drawn type I do that never gets through. Um, so, I use anything at the moment. I'm quite happy using just um, a propelling pencil and a layout pad. I think I'm one of the few designers that, that still knows what a layout pad is. There's something very liberating about going back to that, though, isn't there? Those sort of old techniques and. And you end up scanning it and vectorizing it and doing all the, all the Mac stuff with it. But just the fact that you're starting off with brushes yeah. and ink and things is yeah. it's, it pushes you in a very different I, direction. I think so. I mean, I, I can show you a few things later if you've got time, just to see the way that things go. And it's, it's, it's a shame when they reach a dead end and the client nowadays, you know, when you, it used to present in a very theatrical way. You used to have like seven, eight visuals or something and just with a big flourish get them from <laughs> under the table and nowadays you send a PDF yes. and people go click click click, click. Yeah. yeah quite like number three yeah <laughs> okay then Squeeze you started working with them in 85 so that was around that period as well worked with them for a long time yeah absolutely and, and had a little time not working with them but not for any other reason but they changed labels and things like that but I, I I see them a lot, and I saw them at the weekend because um, they they were uh, Chris and Glenn were playing a little festival down in um, Greenbridge, which is in a, a little country estate um, ten miles down the road, and um, we're doing their new album. So it just feels like a very proper mm. relationship. Squeeze and us is like probably the longest relationship I think we've had. They're good mates. I like them. Yeah. And the design styles that you've used with them vary a lot as well, from kind of paintings and yeah. graphics to photography, and it's quite playful. Some of it as well. Is that what? What's their involvement with that? Um, not normally an awful lot. I mean, um, the last one probably had more involvement. I mean, yes, they will always be the people that say yes, we like it. No, we don't, because they're, it's their music and their, their songs are so fantastic most of the time. Um, they, they're not the kind of people that just churn music out yeah. and don't give it a thought um, but I, my worry with Squeeze has always been that they're such a jolly bunch and the, and the lyrics are very are very often funny uh, tongue in cheek you know for all the reasons that we all know the songs um, but then visually you want to avoid it looking like a comedy band and, and yeah. um, it's tough I, I don't you know, I, I never relished the idea of coming up with something they like. Now, they want something more serious for this new album because some of the songs are a little bit more political. There's been a lot going on with Trump and mm. the referendum and all the rest of it um, and and terrorism and all this kind of thing. And I think Glenn himself is wanting to write more serious songs. I think they're pulling back a bit from that, but they've been talking about art that's actually quite dark and it doesn't feel right mm. so I'm trying to pull them back a bit um, at the moment 1986 you started doing stuff for Tina Turner yeah how um, did that one come about that was through um, a manager Roger Davis um, she was, she'd been at 
HDMI for years, capital, I think. And um, uh, well, he, he resurrected her career, as you know. And the, or the, he's, strangely, there's a. I don't know whether we started working for Tina and then worked for his other artists, or whether it was around the other way. But we had quite a name. Well, not, not a name. We had a reputation for dealing with quite big names by this time. And I think part of the job requires that, is that not being phased by the fact you're working with someone mm. and not actually being so respectful that you end up not doing your job properly, if that makes sense. And yeah. um, So we worked with a few reasonably big names and she was recording in London. So they wanted to do the design in London, although they'd done the photography in L.A., with, I've um, forgotten the name, very big name. Oh, was it Hair Brits or something? It was Hair Brits. Right. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I remember sitting in her, she was she, she had a hired house in Holland Park, <coughs> and sitting in this living room with a <laughs> an old-fashioned projector set up, 35mm transparencies, and Roger had already chosen his favourite 100, 200 shots, going through them, clicking off one after the other, projecting them on the wall. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> really, really bizarre way to choose pictures, especially by today's standards. So was that the, the nature of the involvement of Tina with the artwork? It was just pretty much okaying a photograph. She wasn't involved in any of them. Yeah, not in the shoot. It was all done behind closed doors. She was always very, um, not shy, but a pr private, very private person. Didn't have lots of people hanging around. Mm. And that was another... Hand painted. It was logo weird type, wasn't it? What there. <laughs> yeah, we must have been on a bit of a roll. <laughs> but it's nice, nice time. She's really, she's really nice, and Roger's a great bloke. And, uh... Eighth Wonder. You did Eighth Wonder, and I, I yeah. always assumed that, that because of the Pet Shop Boys link, I always thought that stuff was Pharaohs. But you actually did that. It was a bit of a paste-up job over a year and a half, really. But but it was fine. I mean, we worked with Mark LeBon and a couple of couple of photographers on that who were more fashion people. Mm. And I really liked Patsy. I mean, we got on really quite well. It, you know, not not on a name-dropping kind of thing. I mean, she's terribly young still at the time. Mm. It was all about hair, really, wasn't it? It was hair and fashion, yeah. and it wasn't my area. <laughs> but I knew Mark LeBon. Um, I'm sure it was Mark who did the shots, because we'd, we'd just done an adamant shoot for the Viva La Rock um, thing. That was really good. He, he didn't shoot the front cover, but he did, a, he did all the press shots for, of the band. Because you worked with that adamant for quite a while, didn't you? With it, when a he bit. was as a solo artist. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And how involved was was he in? Because he was extremely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a struggle for him because he was um, some of the work we were doing was going on while he was on tour in America, and he also had taken on um, a role in a play. He was in entertaining Mr. Sloan. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Joe Orton play, and um, so yeah, he was distracted quite a lot. And he was trying to get into movies as well, which he did eventually. He did a slam dance, the film Slam Dance. Oh, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And he's a real character. I really like him. And, and, we did, and we, he's the kind of person that would really respect the fact that his art was in our hands kind of thing. And that was a lovely thing because he'd send you postcards. How's it all going? You know, this kind of thing. And, 
Uh, no one else had ever done that. <laughs> 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 he was really hands-on. And then George Michael, so you went back to George after that Wham stuff a few years before and yeah. worked on the Faith album. Vice versa, really, because um, I think he would, he'd not had a designer that he had forged a relationship with. Um, and someone at the record company said, why don't you work with Style Rouge again? And uh, so he came over and, um, yeah, we... So, yeah, said hello again and how are you doing and this kind of thing and then just that was it he did about two or three photo shoots um, and one of which was Russell Young's which was that Faith album cover The Pit Sniff The Pit Sniff yeah <laughs> um, did he choose that particular image did, for the cover he did and he I, I've somewhere got something with an overlay on it where he's marked all the bits he wants retouched <laughs> three times the first shoot um, was him and Andrew running through a Soho alleyway and the whole thing was like having looking like looking like bad boys as if they'd stolen it's a bit like the opening scene of Trainspotting when I think about it running away <laughs> from trouble um, and we just they, they were really struggling with the fact that they didn't really want to do it anyway actually and we only shot about half a dozen rolls of film and we put something together that looked half decent but they went no, idea and they'd already had two big hits young young guns and wham rap yeah so yeah. they were on the rise and they kind of got what they wanted so this time they did a shoot with eric watson uh rest his soul and uh, we had a really nice shoot with them but uh, with, with a motorbike um and yeah they were just hanging out looking like leather boys on a motorbike and, uh, and I remember that distinctly because George was getting up and moving the lamps around with his bare hands. They're boiling hot. He's going, I don't like that Polaroid. I'm sorry, it's the angle of that lamp. You know, really. <laughs> um, and then a, a day or two later, Eric came over to my studio to deliver the pictures and left them in a cab. So then the third attempt was uh, a photographer called Chris Kramer who'd done a press shoot of them in the same outfits the same week, actually, I think. And that was the shot of them lying down. Uh, and that, that's, we were just given that picture and thought, right, they've made a decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just to go back to Faith, um, I was just looking at the artwork for, the, for, for the, those album, for that album and the singles, and there was a series of little icons that you'd designed for that. Do you remember for, those? For Faith? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> this, this is about the control freak career of George again, but we, we did about... 100 different versions of those icons um, and he came in one day and he said I've been working on this myself and these are the five that I like um, so he took some influence from it, but it's just his handwriting in the end so he sort of redrew your, your concept well he, he knew it was actually his he, he wanted the five letters of faith to represent like the five symbols the fame, money, religion 
or two different religions, and what else was there? There was a heart. Was that love? Love. Tears for Fears, 1989. Yeah. The Seeds of Love album, and it's. Did you do a cover of the single, Sowing the Seeds of Love? The singles. Uh, and Woman in Chains. Woman in Chains. <coughs> yeah, that, as you know, as you probably do know, it's, uh, it was an album that took four years to make. Yes, and infamously. Yeah, and the <laughs> album sleeve took almost as long because. Um, he had it in his head that this was going to be his Sergeant Pepper. I say him, Roland. Roland, yeah. Had it in his head that this was going to be his Sergeant Pepper, and he always wanted that big experience. And I love that album. I, I still love it to this mm. day. I think it, again, it's one of those albums. If I see it in a charity shop, <laughs> I buy it because I want to give it to people and say, not for the cover, no, because I, I can only be a part. Yeah, I can only be part paternity paternity of the cover because there were so many people involved in it um, not least for David Simon who was the photographer and the set builder mm. who was um, a very I think he was a collaborator with Storm Thorgerson quite a bit so, right. so there was a quite a history there so, to, um, David also worked with the stylist Zana who ended up being a fantastic photographer as well so there was a hell of a team mm. on that whole thing, and that set was built <laughs> and stayed in David's studio for about two weeks, which, if you were paying normal rates, it cost a bloody fortune to yeah. keep a set built in a studio. Um, so, yeah, while the set was built, every day it would be like, oh, you're coming over today, we're shooting up, shooting the two twin girls. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll come over that one. And, uh, and so it went on. So it was quite funny. And it's great sleeve. It was it was really lovely, and it was mainly yeah because Roland was in, was heavily involved as well. And mm. um, shortly after it came out, somebody in America um, did a a rap version of the song. Oh, the Johnny Panic thing. Yeah. Yes. Which I really liked as well. Yeah. And uh, they they played it to me and asked to do asked us to do a cover, but don't make don't make it look anything like Seeds of Love. In fact. The record company said most people won't even know the words are the same because they pretty much are the same. Mm. Words. And um, so, and then we were doing the cover, and and one of the guys at the record company said, "This is I love this cover. Can we do something like this for a video?" And I said, "Yeah, are you sure? What's the, you know what's the budget and what have you?" And so we made a video for it. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't for, for the Johnny really, Panic single. Yeah, yeah. it's very. Um, it was low budget and very well, was a long time ago. But was, that was a lot of fun to do. So did you end up directing the video? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've directed quite a few videos, but they just all go under the radar. Not, it's not. It's not been something I've always wanted to, to mm. make my priority. But I've done quite a few, and that was uh, that was a lot of fun though. And it was pre digital editing so there was a, it was real and it's very edity and we did steal some bits here and there and if you find it online you'll see it <laughs> I did Roland, like that song Roland didn't want to be in it and then he saw the rough cut and he went actually I want to be in it can we set up a little shoot and we were like well we're over budget what are we going to do you know so we actually hired the um, the cameraman had his own studio in Kensington and Roland came down and just did a tiny little thing where he, he's got a little cameo with a light bulb sort of swinging in front of his face. 
<laughs> Just do it with your phone now, wouldn't you? You would. You would. <laughs> but um, not in the same way that we did then. It was, it was controlled by an independent record label, so it felt like there was um, a proper cohesion to the relationship. And as soon as the major record companies mm-hmm. get involved, they kind of... They feel, it's very strange. Record companies are not as respectful now as they were years ago of independent creativity, in a way. I think, they, I think they're so used to harnessing everything, mm. controlling everything, including their artists. Um, but yeah, for the five years we worked with Blur, it, was, it covered the transition period where food actually sold the, their own label to EMI, Parlophone. Of course they which, did, yeah, uh, yeah. kind of lost a, lost a little bit of that relationship. And then we were on the fourth album, which was Great Escape, before things started to go a little bit like... Not wrong, but it, it just felt like it wasn't working in the same way. What well, for, for you as a designer, or do you mean for the for, band and the label? Or? Between, well, actually, probably all round, mm. but I can only say from my perspective, we had great fun working with them from day one. And our, some of my most favourite meetings with bands were with Blur because we had a real laugh, you know. Was, and were they very involved in the process as well? Um, some and some. I mean, most of them would turn up and have an opinion, but it was always Damon that got it together. He was the one that called the shots and told people off when they were late for meetings. Because we had a meeting room, they'd organise a meeting with us and and then say, oh, can we hang around afterwards for a band meeting? And you'd go, yeah, okay. It it would always be uh, Damon or Dave Mouth who would do that. So that was the first single, wasn't it? She's so high. Yeah. So did you design the the Blair logo type? Is that your one? Of yeah, yeah. That that's was, such an iconic design. Well, as well, yeah. I mean, thanks. I think it's more by luck, but luck than judgment because we were working on that for months, um, and it was just kind of pre-computer. I mean, we probably had a computer in the office, but it wasn't yeah. important to us to use it for that. It was more trying ideas, and it was what we liked was about Blur was that musically they were a bit all over the place, they were a bit baggy and a bit indie and mm-hmm. a bit, I'm not sure if they were a rock band or a pop band or a, you know. Yeah. And um, so the, there was a, there was something missing in the brief and eventually they said, look, it's, we thought the best thing is try and make them not look like a band, really, try and make them look like a, any other product, British mainly. We, we failed there in a way because the, the, the first image was a Mel Ramos painting of a girl on a hippopotamus and that's... Oh yes, yeah. That's obviously, well I say obviously, it's not that obvious because he wasn't that well known but he was, um, you know, 19, that was a bit of 1960s, 70s pop art, mm. American pop art. Um, but then from then on in we tried to drag it back towards something a bit more British really.
again, I've put a couple of these in here just because I'm fans of these, and just to get kind of the, <laughs> it's that grid album, Electric Head. I love that album. Well, we we that that came almost as a fate to complete. Some uh, one of the guys in the band, Richard, whose name I've forgotten. Norris. That's it. Yeah, um, he had a. I think it was a friend who was an artist, and he came in with some drawings, and uh, I wasn't really digging it myself and I said look I love the band I love what you're doing not sure about this but we um, messed around with it on the computer and threw it back at them and um, just, just changed it enough for, for me to like it and mm. then, but we didn't really have that much involvement it was really um, it was really a case of doing another job and yeah. but I did yeah you know, I know you're an electronic fan but I mean I liked the album but um it wasn't my special specialist area. In fact, dance music never has been. Mm. Uh, even though that's not really dance dance music. But. I, s- I skipped over the Blue Nile as well earlier. Speaking of favourites of mine, I jumped Me over too. the Blue Nile. Me and too. Just... I just wanted to work for them. <laughs> and, um, I knew they were signed to Virgin briefly, and I'd, I'd bought their first album on whatever that sound system comes in. I loved that album, and uh, one of my favourite clients at the time was a lady called Catherine uh, McRae at Virgin, and um, she, you know, I just happened to notice they'd signed the Blue Nile, and I said, do bear me in mind, because I'm a huge fan, and she, I got a phone call one day and just said, oh, they've got an out, I've got a single coming out on Saturday night, um, and I went, great, brilliant, that's, yeah. and she said, but I have to warn you, they've got an idea already. And I said, oh, that's all right, it doesn't matter. And they sh- they sent me a postcard over of the picture, a picture of two, a couple dancing, black and white, like 1950s picture. And she said, we want something like this. And I went, oh, why why something like that? And she said, well, it's, it's by Jean-Luc Cif. He's like Mr. Paris, you know, mid-century photographer. And I went, so I'm sure we can, you know, and there's just like a bit of investigation, a bit of marpling went on, as we call it, and um, yeah, next day got in touch with the agent, and they said, yeah, he'd be delighted to sit on a record cover. Oh, great! So yeah, we put the visual together, and that was that. And then James as well. You started working with James in '92. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Again, short a short relationship. I think we did two or three album covers. Um, the first one was probably seven. I think you might. Yes. Might, the, yeah. Yes. Um, can't remember what happened there. I think it was a case of um, the band wants someone they can work with, and uh, we had meetings with. Um, meetings with them at the studio at Brack Studios and none of them really had a strong idea but they wanted to come up with the idea and we just said well what's Seven about and they said well there's Seven of Us in the band and you know it's I think it was, might have been their seventh album I can't remember anyway but they couldn't beyond that they couldn't come up with a reason for having an image on it and we were struggling running out of time put a few ideas to them um, one of which was my real favourite because um, they'd they'd said something about James has always been seven very individual people. Each of them have got their own life, their own 
music, they do their own thing. Yeah. Um, but essentially, they all come back together, and these seven individual people suddenly become the band again. So I approached an artist who I was a great friend of called um, Andy Eakins, and he did, he actually did that piece of work up there, right. which was a book cover for Exit from New York. Right. Um, and I knew he'd been working on this project, which is very personal, about identity. And he came in and brought a load of um, things that he'd been doing. He, he was picking up people's passport photos they'd had taken at booths and left behind <laughs> uh, because they were shit photographs basically <laughs> oh god I'm not and he was picking them all up and painting over the top of them and turning them into the people he wanted them to be and I showed this stuff to the band as a visual and they they loved it um, but said it's not right for us unless these were pictures of us so um, two of the band uh, were in relationships with women who were pregnant at the time. Tim Booth's wife was pregnant and one of the other guys. Right. So that made me think, why don't we just show a picture of a, an unborn child? Sprout. That album and the singles from that were beautiful as well, with those gorgeous illustrations. Yeah, that was fun. That was nice. We're working with him again, actually, with Polly. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the the electric yeah, guitars and yeah. Prisoner of the Past and the Andromeda House. That though. Yeah. Did you do the illustrations for those? Or? No, we found a lovely illustrator. It was our idea because what they wanted was um, the idea of Andromeda Heights being this place high up in a skyscraper building, or I think it's what he calls his recording studio. And yeah. it's because of the view that he gets from, because where he is, he's out in the middle of nowhere in a sort of dark sky area almost, so he can see stars, and uh, that's very important. That, you know, saying how important it was to him and I just thought what a lovely idea that you're actually in this building way up and you can actually see a star in the shape of the counter space mm -hmm. so we sort of sketched that out and he went love it love it you know and we've got this illustrator whose name I can't remember that girl to to draw it and um, and then at the same time we did uh, visuals for yeah, electric guitars which was that was a photograph that one of us took I think of just a guitar been <laughs> blurred and um, Andromeda Heights was the Aurora Borealis. Mm. They were a lovely yeah. set of designs, those. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, they're, they're, if you're a fan, this album that he had out about 12 years ago called I Trawl the Megahertz. Across it, yeah. Uh, well, you, you can, hopefully you're going to get it with a new cover now. Oh, it's been reissued. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it was very white with oh, lines, wasn't it? When I was shown it, my heart sang. Rob and I continued to talk for a couple of hours after this uh, over lunch and drifted off topic a little bit, so I didn't necessarily record all of that information. But a lot of it did go into the article in Classic Pop magazine, so if you're interested in reading more, I'd suggest that you check out that issue. 
Thanks again to Rob O'Connor and the team at Stylo Rouge. It was an absolute pleasure spending time with you at the studio. And I hope that everybody who's listened has enjoyed the podcast. If you've got any comments, feel free to leave them on the page at SoundCloud. And yeah, tune in for future episodes. Thanks and goodbye.